places in the world where people live longer, happier, better lives, and sometimes just forget to die. Welcome to Infinite Earth Radio. We believe that in a world of finite natural resources, a smart and sustainable future is only possible by lifting up people and unleashing unlimited human potential. Infinite Earth Radio will not only help you learn from bright, visionary civic leaders who are building smarter, more inclusive and sustainable communities, but you'll discover how you can bring these ideas to your community. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Hancocks and Vernice Miller-Travis. Welcome back to Infinite Earth Radio, where we interview thought leaders and change agents who are transforming the future by building smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable communities. If you like what we're doing here at Infinite Earth Radio, please share the show with a friend or colleague and help us grow our audience. The ideas that our guests share each week are critical for building a better future, and we need your help to reach as many folks as possible with these ideas. Okay, let's get to today's show. Our topic today is blue zones, which are places on the planet where people regularly live to be 100, and more importantly, live vital, active lives till the very end. And we are going to talk about the Blue Zone Project, which seeks to produce dramatic improvements in health outcomes in communities by altering the built environment. Our guest today has been called the Johnny Appleseed of walkable and bikeable communities. Dan Burden is the Director of Innovation and Inspiration at Blue Zones, LLC. So first, Dan, welcome to the show and thanks for being here today. It's a treat for me. Thank you. What brings you to this work? What motivates you to work so hard on issues of bikeable, walkable, human-scale communities? Yeah, well, since I kind of thought of myself as an adult, I've always focused on how to get people more active. It was just such a natural thing for me as a kid. So I got to be very good at bicycling, and I found ways I could help promote and market bicycling. Because when I was growing up, it was virtually unheard of for an adult. Children rode bikes, but not adults. So I was there for the actual birthing of adult bicycling. It was in the, oh, I would say the mid-60s when it started to pick up steam. And through the years, I became recognized as an expert and then published in National Geographic for a bicycling adventure, Alaska to Argentina. And then kept going, uh, started development of the Transamerica Bicycle Trail and Finally, I was on Australia somewhere around age 35 and fell in love with walking. And I just loved their cities. And I realized they were building their cities for people where we were building our cities for cars. So that became the next big thing I did. And my career evolved around, I think, the walking side more than the bicycling side. The walking side is much more complex. Great. So, yeah, so you, and you've done this. You're a guru or perhaps the guru on making America's communities less auto And you've been doing this work for a long time. Tell us about your current gig as Director of Innovations and Inspiration at Blue Zones, LLC. Yeah. <laughs> the, the founder and CEO asked me to come up with a title, and I said, well, what do I do best? And I thought, well, I inspire, and I do innovate ideas. I came up with that title. But my my job is really to get people excited about the possibilities of changing the built environment, become much more of a great habitat for people to live, 
to create the great nest, so to speak, rather than something that's all messed up. And so it's a fun job and a fun title to have. What are blue zones? Blue zones, if you can just imagine picking up a blue magic marker, are those places in the world where people live longer, happier, better lives, and sometimes just forget to die until the day they just don't wake up. And they have been known for a long time by all kinds of medical researchers. But it was Dan Buettner working with National Geographic where the blue zones actually started to be studied to come up with an idea to create communities where people would have all the health benefits. So that's the origin. And the only reason they're blue zones is that the magic marker someone picked up when they were drawing them happened to be blue. (laughs) Great. That was going to be my my next question. Um, So tell us about the Blue Zones project and how do people get their community to be a Blue Zone project? Well, right now there are roughly 25 designated cities that are Blue Zones. It's a formal process that people go through. We want every single one to be successful. So we Once the community is identified, there needs to be a sponsor because it's a commitment. It can be three years. It could be five years for some, a 10-year commitment of funding so that we can hire the right staff, train the right staff, set the right policies so that we can do all of the things that Blue Zones calls for, better nutrition, a better access to food and change in lifestyles, cessation of things like tobacco, and The area that I work in is maybe the toughest, but it's also one of the most important, and that is changing the built environment through lots of policies to where now we favor people in general as opposed to over-design our cities for our cars. If people want to learn more about the Blue Zones LLC and the Blue Zone projects, where would they go to do that? Real simple, bluezones.com. It explains just about everything you could ever want (laughs) at one website. Yeah, bluezones.com. Dot com. Okay, great. So now tell us about the Blue Zone project you've been working on in Hawaii that was featured at the New Partners for Smart Growth Conference. Well, uh, first of all, Hawaii is going to be an entire state that embraces Blue Zones. We are launching in uh, certainly Honolulu and then the north portion of the Big Island as well as uh, Hilo. So those are the areas we're starting with uh, concentrating And over time, once those are well underway, and in time, all of the villages throughout Hawaii. And I think something very significant about Hawaii is they would do, as two other states, want to become the healthiest state in the nation. They have many things that are already underway. And so what Blue Zones will be able to do there is to meet them where they are and keep going forward. So we don't invent things from scratch. That would never work. We basically do a full assessment of where the opportunities are and then figure out where we can give the greatest lift, we call it, to where we empower the what we call the ground cover, the people working from the ground up, and work with the leadership and provide the training in, in terms of the built environment for certain where we can offer the right model projects that they can go forward with. And something we call a marquee, just as it sounds, it's that project that people are going to so totally take notice of and back that when it comes to be, they're going to say, well, what can we do next? So we always look for where we do some of the easy work, but where we can do long-term policy work and those that are really going to command the attention. So are, are any of the Blue Zone projects that you've worked on 
Any of them occurring in primarily low-income or minority communities? I would say that all of our projects, because they, in time, engage all of the community, that we're always working with areas that lack the transportation equity or just equity in general. We don't so far grab the attention of the entire community that might be categorized that way. We work within a Perth or a Honolulu where we do face those challenges and those opportunities, and we try to really make sure that those are some of the first projects that we do capture. Places of high ethnic diversity or or low socioeconomic levels, we try to grab those early on. And likewise, we recognize the great need for people to age in place. And so we're always looking for where we can help those populations that are now finding it challenging to be able to walk and any other form of active transportation, the social life that they're engaged in and so on. I see. So the literature shows that health outcomes in low income and communities of color are disproportionately not as good in many cases at other communities. So it seems like the work that you do would be it would be ideally targeted towards those communities. So what would we need to have happen kind of at a local level or at the governmental level to create that dynamic where you're being asked to come in and these types of projects are occurring in those types of communities? What, what are the obstacles to making that happen? Well, the big obstacle is that as decades went by and transportation policies were created and land use policies were created, Number one, they were disconnected. We often were overbuilding land outward, failing to understand that we were leaving behind all the other people of the center community. And we were pulling out schools and jobs and other resources. So our challenge is to have the entire community come together and say, it's our generation that's now going to correct uh, the opportunities. But realize just how deep-rooted and how challenging these shifts in policy are going to be. And we get to some really complex issues. For example, a couple of our Blue Zones communities, especially Fort Worth, Texas, and virtually all of Collier County, these are places that have walled communities, debated communities, and where the things outside the community are very unwalkable because we didn't build the right infrastructure where there would be eyes on the principal streets, and the streets themselves became all-powerful with speed and conditions. So these are not easy tasks to figure out how do we work with elected leaders and planning and other staff to start to correct for the topsy-turvy world that got created. And it didn't happen overnight. It happened over 40, 50, even 60 years. It's all been coming. So this is going to be a big shift. So how long have you been involved with the New Partners for Smart Growth Conference, and what role do you think it has played in raising the interest in walkable, bikeable communities? Well, I want to say I was able to take part in the very first one. I'm recalling that was uh, in Los Angeles, and I'm very excited. It's, it's the one big thing I always look forward to coming to every year. It's where I learn the greatest new ideas and sometimes get to share the ideas as well. I would say that it is when we come to the built environment, one of the very best places to not only get schooled, but to build your knowledge base about what does work. I've always considered the great schooling and grounding and refresher <laughs> uh, throughout my career. So do you think walkable, bikeable communities are inherently more 
equitable in addition to being healthier and better for the planet? Yes, by definition. And, you know, all we have to do is go back to around 1900, even as late as 1920, before we really messed things up. Every community on the planet was walkable. Nothing else would have penciled out. Nobody would have been able to do anything other than make use of their own feet. So I would say that all we're really doing is talking about how do we get back to those common core principles. We used to build blocks, certainly the principal blocks in the community, with a whole full range of uh, economic income. Got to live in Missoula, Montana, and the block where we bought our house, we had college professors living on the same block with us, but we also had one house in particular, remember, that couldn't have been more than 300 square feet. It was framed off of the alley. It didn't command enough value that it would have taken up the lot itself, but equitable. And there was a great mix, uh, certainly in the great area that the communities were framed from, whether we worked off of a river or a railroad or wherever. So I'm a, I'm a little jealous that you lived in Missoula, Montana. It's one of the it's one of the great hidden towns in America. I vividly recall being in downtown Missoula, talking to one of my colleagues, saying that. I can easily count more bicycles than I can count cars. So did you have anything to do with the design, or what is it about Missoula, Montana, that makes it such a great walkable, bikeable community? It's a college town. College towns have an extra lever. They tend to be, in their very nature, they seek being equitable and well-grounded. But I would say Missoula stands out in a number of other ways. It certainly has the right pattern or, or bones of a town. It's an old railroad town to start with and an old lumbering town. But it's very well scaled. When I lived there, we didn't own a car, and I could go anywhere on foot. But if I wanted to get there a little faster, bike was the easy answer. I did have a big role to play in that I helped get the very first bike and pedestrian coordinator there. I helped create the position. And wrote the original bike plan for Missoula. But they have just kept accelerating their growth. They seem to have created some infrastructure that's for bikes alone. So they've got separated areas that are strictly for biking and walking. And I find myself more and more going to big cities like places like San Francisco, Toronto. And I'm struck with it, you know, the need to maybe start redesigning and rethinking those cities. Because there are so many people on foot and so many people on bike. And they're mixing in with cars. Can you speak a little bit about that, about you know, what do we need to do in, in our cities to make that start to make more of a transition away from an auto-central design to a more pedestrian people bike design? The real key success for any town that wants to develop a very good active transportation plan, whether it be bicycling, walking, and so on, we must design our streets so that they do not induce either high volumes or high speed. We want massive numbers of people walking and bicycling. We have to build better infrastructure. We not only need separate paths, which which is going to meet the needs of a lot of people who are looking for the uh, recreational or fitness side, but we need to make walking and bicycling natural activities again, and that means virtually every street now has some way to contribute to, to the, the whole system. And so some of the best new tools, which have been used forever in Europe, but now they're coming to our country, is to do cycle tracks or buffered bike lanes. 
ways that are going to attract more families. I'd say the um, novice even bicyclist can use bike lanes. We want to reach down and, and pull in tens of thousands of beginners who are going to make that transition and start to feel comfortable with the whole system for the entire city they live in. Great. So we have a few questions that we've asked every guest. We kind of call them the lightning round questions. They're designed to be kind of short answers. If you can implement one change or pick one leverage point that would lead to smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable communities, what would it be? Make every decision based around how is this going to help people? How are we going to support more people living good, healthy lives? What one action could our listeners take to help build a more equitable and sustainable future? I think, again, it comes down to getting some overall vision and carrying out the vision. We have been very good at creating detailed plans, but now we have to go straight to implementation. We need to think about how quickly we can start to bring the changes we seek. Great. If you're successful in the work that you are doing, what does the world look like 30 years from now? (laughs) You know what? It's going to look a heck of a lot like it looked in 1900. We're not going to be burning as many fossil fuels. We're going to be much more green. Every block's going to have its own special joy and happiness to be found. We'll always, in any direction we look, see people walking, biking, maybe not even see a car for a while. It's just going to be marvelous. Fantastic. Is there anything else that you'd want to tell our audience that we haven't touched on? One thing I think is so important is to recognize the need for change. And that our jobs, and it doesn't matter whether we work for a city or an elected leader or just a a citizen, our job from here on out is to become a very successful change agent, a person who loves the process of change and helps all the people who are afraid of change to embrace it and to understand it. Could I also share a term that's being used in the military right now? Absolutely. Okay, it's called VUCA. V-U-C-A, and it's a very short abbreviation that the military recognized as far back as 1978, and they, they declare even more today that we have entered a VUCA world. And what that means is from here on out, and this is at every level we work, the world will be volatile. You, it's going to be certain. It's definitely going to be complex. There's no simple answers anymore. And it's going to be ambiguous. We won't always know the answer, and we've got to embrace the kinds of change that are going to bring all these elements together and still allow us to be successful. And you think about all the diatribe and everything going on with the current presidential elections, people are responding with fear, with hatred, and other things because they can't understand the complexities of the world today. They don't like ambiguity, But we need people who can master these things and recognize that's just the world from here on out. And that if we're going to have great places for people to live, good habitat, and just generally healthier people, we're going to have to understand VUCA. It's just here and it's real and it's going to be what all of us face for the rest of our lives. Well, thanks for doing this, you guys. And uh, I'm so delighted that we could take this time. I hope what I covered was what you were seeking, yeah? Yeah, I, I think so. I, I think in general, for me personally, as a white person, a planner, and yeah. somebody who cares about the environment a lot, I think that we haven't really thought, we think a lot as planners, we think a lot about the physical capital and 
the environmental capital, but we don't think enough about the human and social capital. And, uh, oh, absolutely. and a lot of people really have been left out of this equation. So when we have conversations about bikeability, it tends to be more, you know, people who can go out and buy bikes and the bike racing crowd and the people who are really into bikes tends to be a pretty white crowd, right? So, oh, gosh, yeah. And yeah. so, and where the real benefits from this work, if you look at the numbers in terms of health disparities, the real benefits of this work could really be in these lower income communities of color. So we want to be stimulating that idea that we ought to be bringing these ideas to these communities and be focused on bringing these ideas to these communities. So. Yeah, I love that. One of our great secrets that we're starting to apply, uh, this is what gave us huge lift for Hawaii, is we put on what we call mobile study tours, where we can do a walking audit in two or three hours, very easy. A mobile study tour, and especially the way we ran the ones for Hawaii, are peer-to-peer. So knowing that the Hawaiians love the Pacific Northwest, we put together a three-day mobile study tour, engineers meeting with top engineers, planners with top planners, elected leaders with the top elected leaders all across all the professions. And in operating the mobile study tour, what we were able to do is, one, get everybody from Hawaii to mix together. Islands that haven't you know, had a chance to do a lot of mixing professionally got to. Uh, they got to meet their ultimate peers and see how people are actually carrying off the conquests that they get. And by the end of the the first three, uh, three and a half day mobile study here for the first one, we were just getting such great rave reviews that our sponsor, in this case, the Hawaii Department of Health, said, Dan, we want to do another round. And so we put together another one. And we thought we could turn off the faucet somewhere around 30 people again because we wanted that one-on-oneness. But they kept getting more and more people, including mayors and chiefs of staff and so on. So the second round was even more powerful than the first round. And we now know that these two mobile study tours have melted all the walls, broken down the silos as much as you can in a short period of time. People are talking with one another, looking for the answers, and they believe fully believe that they can bring about the same changes as we're seeing in the Pacific Northwest. So it's such a powerful tool to put together a mobile study tour, in this case, peer-on-peer. And I, I just can't imagine a more powerful tool in all of planning, all of administrative work. This was the real deal maker. It would be fantastic if we could get you know, some funding organization mm-hmm. to fund Uh, doing these blue zone mobile study tours in what I would call targeted, I'm going to call them red zones, right? So take your red marker and go find the places where they have the worst health outcomes and target those areas specifically. That would be fantastic. Oh, it would. And I really think for the return on the dollar, and we got every compliment you could ever get from the Hawaii Department of Health, I think a CDC or Nebraska Department of Health or whoever could get more bang for their buck doing this than anything else they can and help overcome the complexity of the built environment. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know if you saw there was a study. The study just came out like last week from, um, it was done by folks at SUNY Stony Brook, the State University of America Stony Brook, that basically said 70 to 90% of all cancers are um, lifestyle and environment related. I did see that, and I reread it this morning where it got 
got challenged and then it got defended and uh, it's evidently rock solid, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty amazing. Obviously, where the right built environment is going to make walking, social engagement and uh, lifestyle choices a natural thing. It's just so important that we get this one right. Fantastic. Dan, again, thank you so much. And thank you all for listening. And we look forward to seeing you all again on the next episode of Infinite Earth Radio. Infinite Earth Radio is a podcast produced by Skio in association with the Local Government Commission. To learn more about Skio, the Local Government Commission, Infinite Earth Radio guests, or how you can make a difference in your community, visit our website at infiniteearthradio.com or join us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash infinite earth radio and Twitter by following at infinite earth radio. 